Welcome to Microdose Psychedelic Insights, powered by The Conscious Fund. This is the Sci-Fi series, discovering the cutting-edge science and research in psychedelic medicine. Welcome back, everybody, to another exciting episode of the Sci-Fi Podcast, where we talk to leading industry experts, clinicians, scientists, and researchers to unravel the mystery that is psychedelic science. Today, I'm joined by our wonderful guest, Dr. Theodore Bender of Unity Point. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Bender. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. It would be really awesome if you could, you know, we had a really great discussion last time that we talked. If you could share a little bit about yourself and what you do with our audience before we get started, that would be wonderful. Yes, I'm happy to. Um, I am currently the president of Unity Place, which is the Behavioral Health and Substance Use Disorder Division of Unity Point Health in Central Illinois. Uh, I came to Peoria, Illinois here about a year ago to uh, take over leadership of a, of a newly formed merger, which is Unity Place. Um, Unity Place was the merger of three just storied franchises here in Central Illinois, um, the Taswood Center for Wellness, the Human Service Center, and the Unity Point Health, Behavioral Health Division, um, which is comprised of psychiatry, um, testing, inpatient residential facilities, inpatient psychiatric units, uh, and some outpatient units. Um, so the merger of these three great entities was, was very big news. I, I heard of it even before I uh, was considered for the position when I was in Texas. Uh, and it really just, it, the, the mission is really to deliver the most comprehensive, integrated community and medical behavioral health care system around. Um, we have a vision of, of creating a national model here that we can kind of create a blueprint and, and give to the rest of the, of the country. Um, we know that there are significant gaps in, in care, uh, in mental health care and substance use disorder treatment. And our, our goal here is to integrate these three great resources into a seamless transition from one stage to the next while optimizing outcomes and reducing, you know, emergency department and inpatient admissions as much as possible. Uh, that's really fascinating. You're at the forefront of such, uh, you know, an, an important epidemic right now between mental health and the opioid crisis uh, and, and the pandemic. You know, I, I think the work you're doing right now is so incredibly important. Uh, if you could just take a second to, you know, talk a little bit about what that's been like for you in the last six months or throughout this, you know, crazy year of 2020 and, and how that's kind of impacted your work. Yeah. You know, I kind of, I kind of joke around with my staff uh, sometimes and, and tell them, you know, if you ever get, uh, if you ever long in the future are, are looking for another job or interviewing with another facility, if they ever ask you the, the, the age old question, tell me a time where you had to manage through, diversity or, or difficulty, we're all going to have a fantastic answer. <laughs> um, That's so true, man. This pandemic has been the most challenging um, point in my career. And I would, I would venture to say for, for many managers in many different fields, not just medical, um, they could probably say the same. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a difficult time in many ways because we're seeing just huge spikes in mental health disorders, substance use disorders, um, related disorders, overdose deaths, and and I'm really worried about potential spikes in suicide, although we might not see that for several years to come after the pandemic. Um, but one thing's for sure, the rate of diagnosable mental health conditions in the United States is skyrocketing, especially around the disorders uh, like depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, things like that. We, we've hit a point where we've literally created the most, the most toxic possible recipe for mental health and substance use disorders. The pandemic has caused such an increase in fear, isolation, and economic downturn. Adding all three of those together is just a recipe for disaster in mental health and substance use disorders. Um, certainly, uh, our our, our company here in Central Illinois, a nonprofit, large mental health and substance use treatment company, is the, seeing significant increases in demand. In fact, you know, one of my biggest struggles right now is just hiring as fast as I can to keep up, to keep pace. Um, 
a good problem to have in business, but it's still a problem. Right. Um, and luckily, we do. We are getting a tremendous amount of applications, and there is, you know, there are people out there that are looking to get into this business, which is great because having the opposite problem there would be really scary. Um, but the demand for services has gone up so fast that you know it's it's makes our, it's making our heads spin. That being said, we are more efficient, more productive, and uh, have done excellent work in integrating the three agencies to develop processes to streamline and to really uh, care for and get patients into treatment who really need it. Oh man. Yeah. That's, that's really intense and really important work that you're doing right now. Uh, it'd be really interesting, you know, before we dive more into there's so much I, I want to talk about based on what you just said, but if you could give me a little insight into what led you to practice the type of medicine that you do today uh, and, you know, and what inspired you to work with mental health and addiction and, you know, these very pressing issues that we have in our society today? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's interesting how how careers tend to go. You know, you kind of start off thinking one thing and you end up in a completely different place a lot. And um, that certainly has been the case for, for me. I, uh, I remember being an undergrad at Florida State University I think I changed my major three, four, five, nine times. And <laughs> I finally, I got to my junior year and I took a course in um, psychology, intro to psychology, something like that. And as, as my mind was at the time, I really wasn't paying too much attention. I really wasn't that motivated, but I got, we got to chapter two and it was all about the human brain and just learning the basic things about the human brain. I was instantly fascinated. Like I had no idea that, you know, the brain was sitting in liquid, firing off billions of electrical impulses every every millisecond. I had no idea that was going on inside my own head, you know, and everybody uh, else's. Yeah. I became really fascinated with that aspect of, of neuroscience. So I, I continued taking psychology classes, and I originally wanted to be a neuropsychologist, and I started working in laboratories, and even as an undergrad, got these great experiences where I was able to do... Um, uh, I was able to learn a process called polymerase chain reaction or PCR, which is basically taking a small amount of cells from inside the cheek and multiplying them, you know, millions and billions of times. So you could actually see variations in genetic structure. Um, and I even was able to get a publication as an undergraduate. So I knew that's, I knew I wanted to continue my education. Um, and literally right at the end of my undergrad career, I suddenly just changed my mind and decided I wanted to work with patients directly. And my, my neuroscience advisor was like, okay, well, this seems pretty sudden considering all of your work has been in neuroscience. Are you sure? And I was like, yes, I'm absolutely sure. So there I am uh, in graduate school in a, in a clinical psychology program, not, not neuroscience. Um, and I did continue some of that work I was doing, but I, my, my interests really shifted from, you know, serotonin transporter genes over to suicide. And I became really fascinated with really one aspect of suicide. That's what most of my publications center around, which is this notion of an acquired ability for suicide. Um, there's so many myths around suicide, you know, you probably heard before. Many people have heard a lot of the myths and believe them to be true. But one of the myths that I knew was false was that suicide is the easy way out. You've probably heard people say that before. Many people have said that. People, you know, will hear about a suicide and say how, you know, how selfish it was and they just took the easy way out. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I knew that. But, you know, how do you how do you scientifically validate that? And the, the main component that I was working off was this acquired ability for suicide. Now, there's three main components for suicide that are necessary for one to make a serious attempt or to die by suicide. And those three components are combined um, together as desire and ability. So the desire piece has two components thwarted belongingness and a perceived burdensomeness on others. So you don't feel like you belong anywhere. You're, you feel ostracized, whether or not you really are. Uh, and you also really do believe that you're a burden on others, your family, your friends, and they would just be better off if you were gone. So it's more common for people to have the desire, but it's a lot less common for people to acquire the ability to do so. So 
I, I got really interested in that one piece of it, the ability. And I started thinking, you know, which patient populations or populations could you really look at that? And, you know, and who acquires this ability, whether or not they're suicidal, you could have the acquired capability, but not the desire. So who would get to that point and how? So my research really started to focus on that. And eventually it led me to um, the military. As you can imagine, they go through a lot of fear and threats and exposure that may increase one's ability to die by suicide. If in fact, that was something that they wanted to do. They're exposed to weapons, to combat, to, you know, many other experiences. And that led uh, into um, becoming part of a very large grant um, known as the Military Suicide Research Consortium. Uh, and we, our initial round of funding was around $35 million for five years. And then um, that project was extended for another five years after. And it's still going on today. And, and there's been a ton of publications that have come out around that. And it's all focused on um, warrior resiliency in the military and preventing suicide. So through that work, I also did a, a four-year postdoc in that field as I was working in substance use as well. Through that work, um, especially on my residency, um, I started working with um, veterans who were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and almost every single one of them had a substance use disorder. So in doing the actual individual treatment, I started becoming much more interested in the substance use disorder piece. And then again, in, in the same tradition of my kind of changing my mind at the last second type uh, response that I was becoming known for, when I was finishing my residency, I had battled with this for years and years about what I was going to do going into, you know, academia and continuing my publication work and research or going into practice. And I remember I had a, I had a conversation with my advisor at the time. I was, I was three months away from finishing and having my PhD. And I just said, you know, I've been struggling with this for years and I don't know what to do. And she said, just follow your heart, do what you want to do, what makes you happy. So I, I did, and I felt relieved when she said that, and I applied for a job in South Florida, because that's where I wanted to go back to. My family was from there. And it was the first job I applied to was a therapist at a substance use disorder treatment facility. And I got the interview, I got the job, and my goal was just to be a therapist and see patients, and I was really happy doing that. About six months into that, they asked me to be um, a, a program director, and I said no because I was happy doing what I was doing. They were pretty relentless. I finally caved. Now fast forward eight years and I'm, you know, in management and running large companies, which I've been doing now for the last um, six or seven years. Wow, what a story. That's really fascinating. I can totally relate to, you know, ending up somewhere in my career as well that I totally didn't expect when I started, you know, and uh, it's been it's been quite a journey. I've been really grateful for it. And, you know, part of what I love is being able to connect with people like you and, you know, talk about these issues. And, you know, you, you brought up so many interesting things that intersect with psychedelic medicine um, from your story about PCR. I don't know if you know the, the way it was. Uh, first conceived the idea to to take the DNA and to to heat it up and separate the strands and then cool it back down mm -hmm. to amplify it was actually the guy was in California I believe and he, I, th I think he was on mushrooms and he was <laughs> now I absolutely do not condone driving on psychedelics I believe he was driving <laughs> and and looking at the rearview mirror and he was seeing the trees kind of come together. Um, and then unzip themselves basically, you know, and then spiral yeah. around and then come back together again. And he was like, oh, what if we could do that to DNA, you know? And that's sort of how <laughs> PCR, one of the most revolutionary innovations in biology came to be. Um, but, but yeah, no, focusing a, a, a little bit more on, you know, what we're here to talk about today, uh, psychedelic medicine, I think it's so powerful um the the clinical research that has gone into it and we talk about things like suicide um you know the the utility of, of drugs like psilocybin and ketamine ketamine in particular has shown a lot of efficacy in you know treating acute suicidality uh in, in the research lately uh, i think there's a lot of relevant topics so i'd love to just get your broad strokes opinion on on this new wave of of medicine that's coming into the fold and reintegrating into modern pharmacopoeia and just what your thoughts are on it in general. 
Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, and that story you mentioned about how PCR was, was visualized, <laughs> now that you mentioned it, I do remember reading that a long <laughs> time ago. I had forgotten that, but you're, you're absolutely right. That's how, that's how it was originated. And, you're, and, you know, it's been an incredibly important piece of, of biology and chemistry for a long time now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, I think it's, it's a great question. And it reminds me of um, going back into my graduate school days. And, you know, before I was kind of classically trained as a scientist, um, and, you know, we all have biases, but I wasn't as as good at being objective in spite of data and evidence against my own emotional attachments or feelings. You know, you, you develop yeah. that over time. The, you know, the good ones do. So I remember being back in graduate school and um, we were studying for our comprehensive exams, which is usually around the second or third year of grad school. And as you can imagine, it's, you know, on a very wide range of topics and we had study groups and we were, we had to read like 150 scientific papers and be able to answer questions about this and synthesize all that information. And at the time it was, I was reading about medication assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. And it was some work um, called harm reduction that was coming out of Nova Southeastern University in South Florida. Um, and the work, I believe, was done by uh, a pretty famous couple in the field, the Sobels. They're, they're also known for a, uh, a very important statistical analysis and regression. So I was reading this information, and it's early again, and again, my biases were stronger back then. And I'm reading the data of this paper, and it's showing efficacy for harm reduction over just pure abstinence for drug use. And at the time, you know, this is probably 2005, 2006. You know, even not, which is not that long ago, but if you right. walked into a treatment center or an AA meeting and you tried to spout, you know, the benefits of harm reduction over abstinence only models, people would laugh you out of the room. Right. Um, you know, it's been even now, these life saving drugs are only offered at, I think I read about a third of uh, drug treatment facilities in this country. So even now, still a very heavy bias. Um, towards the evidence and the data. But if you read the evidence and the data now, especially on medication-assisted therapies like Suboxone or Methadone or drugs like that, the, it reduces the mortality rate by half. And that's been shown again and again. And it's very clear what the data is on this. So what else do you really need? You know, mm-hmm. we're in the middle of one of the worst overdose you know, epidemics this country has ever seen. In fact, it is the worst it's ever been. And this year, I imagine, is going to be way worse than last year, which was the worst year. So if we have medications and tools in our toolkit that are safe, that save lives, why aren't they more widespread used? Going back to graduate school, when I was reading this information, my immediate response in my mind was, this is garbage. And I literally threw the papers away. <laughs> now, Going back, that was really dumb. But that was kind of the, the thinking at the time, and even now is to some degree. But the point of that is to show that when it comes to psilocybin and psychedelics and ketamine, it would be remiss of me or anyone to just dismiss these potential treatment uh, modules just because it's, it doesn't sound good or we're just using drugs to treat drugs, to treat drug addiction. It, it, would be really, it would be a really big mistake for scientists or people in this field to just dismiss it. So I learned that the hard way, and I'm glad I did, because now we have this new potential treatment on the forefront, um, which is you know the psychedelics and ketamine and these types of drugs. And even though it's very, very early in the research, and especially with you know, large-scale clinical trials, there is a lot of promise. And the data is pretty good in a lot of different situations. Now, I have, I have concerns, definite concerns, and I definitely want to see more well-controlled science, bigger, bigger trials, more participants. Um, but overall, some of, these, some of these potential treatments could be game-changing. Yeah, I, I absolutely uh, agree, you know, and when it comes to really serious things like treatment-resistant depression, alcoholism, and addiction, yeah. uh, the, the studies that we sparked in the early 60s and 70s, you know, we're, we're circling back to that now, and the research is 
even more profound and even more groundbreaking now and and you know we're really performing some some really high quality trials uh, i was just writing a blog actually on professional so we're launching a new series for microdose called psychedelics and and our first one is psychedelics and sports so we're talking to some professional athletes and it's really interesting seeing the intersection of for example well psychedelics and sports because uh one very important application i think is the management of pain for example you know hmm. uh obviously the the widespread use of opioids and the over prescription of opioids has serious ramifications uh, and, and it's really important to note that you know there was recently a double-blind uh, randomized controlled trial that showed microdosing LSD was um, paramount to, I believe it was 20 milligrams of oxycodone, you know, um, mm. so so not placebo, not just placebo. Uh, and then even more interesting when it comes to ketamine is Dr. Becker and the team at Bexon have found that people that receive ketamine in the post-operative uh, pain management phase are less likely to have that pain graduate to chronic pain, um, which that becomes a whole new and, and much more difficult thing to then battle versus severe acute pain for a limited amount of time. And it has to do with the way that these cells, because, you know, the cells in our body are actually able to have a, a memory, so to speak, of pain, you know. Um, and so what the, the NMDA uh, receptor antagonist that is ketamine does is it disrupts that memory that these cells essentially form about the pain uh, so they're less likely to you know go and become chronic pain uh, patients after uh, and so I think that's just a really fascinating uh, I remember I did a podcast some years ago with Eugene Monroe the former left tackle for the Ravens and he was talking about uh, you know he's one of the first football players to advocate for medical cannabis uh, saying you know how much better it obviously Obviously, is um, to the opioids that are running rampant right now in the NFL because just think about how badly those players are getting beat up all the time, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. Then you, you have things like CTE and concussions and traumatic brain injury and and and, and all of that, you know. And so there's a huge a huge uh, potential and promise that psychedelic medicines like these hold uh, in really shifting the paradigm. Uh, around pain management, uh, around addiction, and around mental health. And I think a lot of our discussion today centers around, you know, shifting uh, our cultural understanding and paradigm around things like addiction. So I'd be interested to know from you how you've seen the space kind of evolve both for the better and the worse uh, in the last well, since you've been a, a, a part of it, you know, like uh, what's changed amidst the opioid epidemic, new therapeutics, um, what are you excited about? It'd just be interesting to get your take on all that. Yeah, a great question. And kind of think generally, you know, if, if answering the what am I excited about? Um, the, the thing I'm excited about most, and I think we need, you know, there's a tremendous amount of research that needs to be done to fully understand this. Because, I mean, even one example is like antidepressants. We still don't have a great idea of how antidepressants function in right. the brain. We don't, I mean, we know that they work. And sometimes you have to do about a trial and error for the person, but they can be very effective to treat major depressive disorder. And they can, they can be a cure for major depressive disorder, even if, if that's all you're doing. But we don't have a great understanding of all the mechanisms in the brain, how it even works. Um, and with, with, the, with what we're talking about today, I'll tell you what was most exciting to me. So let's just say we're, we've got to a point where we're using microdosing of whatever to treat major depressive disorder. Maybe, maybe let's make sure, let's say that that's a mainstream treatment, which sure. is definitely not right now, but it could be someday. The, the question, you know, that you want to have is, you know, if for the lay person out there who's thinking about this, well, what am I doing? Am I just taking LSD every day and that's treating my depression? That obviously cannot be the answer. Because, you know, there's concerns about, you know, toxicity and other things like that. But if you can give someone a treatment for depression like this with a small amount of um, psilocybin or ketamine or whatever you're using, and then like you were talking about, it has lasting effects on, you know, structural change in the brain, that's what I'm most excited about. Because that may be a, a few doses or whatever the treatment protocol is. And then it leads to, for example, a surge of glutamate, which activates AMPA receptors and creates downstream activity, which can result in neuroplastic changes, including things like uh, synaptogenesis, for example, or, you know, even more importantly, the formation of new neuronal pathways. 
Now, when you're doing treatment for depression, like cognitive behavioral therapy, there's evidence to suggest that cognitive behavioral therapy creates new neuronal pathways, which is part of the reason why it works. Much like, you know, learning how to ride a bike creates new neuronal pathways or learning a new language. Um, with, cons- with continued and considerate, considerable practice, you can make positive changes in the brain. Now, if these drugs can, can do something similar and especially faster, um, I mean, we're going to save a lot of lives and we're going to improve the lives of a lot of people. Because, you know, we were just talking about what the pandemic is doing to mental health. Um, we're going to need some new tools in the toolbox to really kind of mitigate the damage that this pandemic is going to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, you know, and it's it's fascinating to see the robust toolkit that's coming, uh, you know, into fruition as far as psychedelic medicine goes and what we have available. I think a really important uh, element that you brought up is that it's not just about you know, the, the medication in this, in this, uh, context in particular, you know, it's really important to include other elements such as diet and, uh, psychotherapy, um, and, and connecting people with each other. And so I think it'd be really interesting for you to just talk about what you think the landscape, the clinical landscape will look like both for the providers and the patients, you know, as we integrate psychedelic therapy into maybe traditional rehabilitation, um, you know, care, caregiving models. Yeah. You know, there, I think that the one, uh, at least from what I can tell in the research and what I've heard kind of anecdotally, the, the one, the drug that's mostly been kind of coming to a place of acceptance is the ketamine. And you've probably heard of that the, there are ketamine clinics right. going up across the country now. Uh, and, you know, I think that's probably the more and more accepted ones, at least within the, you know, internal circles of people working in this business. I mean, at, at Unity Place, you know, we're not ruling anything out in the future. We want to remain innovative um, and we're going to continue to monitor the research and see what makes sense. So I, I'm most excited about the, the results of the ketamine trials and things I've seen so far, especially again with the evidence that there may, they may form you know, new neuronal pathways and create neuroplastic, positive neuroplastic changes. Um, I read an interesting article recently. Actually, I think it just came out. You, you may have heard of it. Uh, it's in the Journal of the American Medical Association of Psychiatry. They did a very carefully controlled um, uh, rigorous study for psychedelic treatment for major depression. It was 27 people. So again, the sample size is kind of low, um, but they showed a, you know, of a nearly four times greater effect in the treatment of depression right. than kind of standardized treatment. And what you mentioned too, which is also crucial, there was, they received two doses of psilocybin on different days and received about 11 hours of psychotherapy. So it wasn't just, you know, here's some psilocybin, good luck. It was <laughs> carefully dosed, careful, carefully controlled in combination with standardized treatment for depression therapy. So the results were really good. And again, it's a small study. You got, you know, you get away from just the small pilots and do larger scale. But again, if, if we found a way to significantly reduce depression fast and furious, I mean, you're, we're going to save thousands of lives. So that's exciting. Um, the one thing about studies like this that I think are also kind of hard to tease out, and it's going to take some really smart scientists out there to figure this piece out, is the, the experimental group here, they, they obviously knew that they were receiving psilocybin. Mm-hmm. You can't really <laughs> double blind it. You know right, what I mean? right. Of course. <laughs> Because even if you don't tell them, I think they're going to figure it out pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> agreed, agreed. It's, um, not, it's not like so, a traditional so, drug in that way. You're yeah. right. Ex- exactly. So the, the, one of the problems that they're going to have to deal with in the science is that expectancy effect, you know, almost like placebo, almost like, you know, you're getting the, the, the drug, you're getting the experimental condition. Therefore, you know, does that, ha- does that play into your symptom improvement? Um, but we're getting to a point now where, again, this is a really well done study. Um, and we saw again, not just slight effects, but significant effects. So again, these are like the springboards or the foundation for, you know, these larger clinical trials that I'm really waiting to see. And I'm very excited about. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's super fascinating to see the, the results that these trials have, have been showing. They've really been unearthing some really fascinating, um, 
therapeutic benefits of psychedelics that, that you're light that you're right they seem to be very long lasting uh which is a completely opposed to kind of our current approach which is something that needs to be taken daily such as methadone yep. or maybe uh antidepressants and i think that's really powerful and really novel you know um because I think it's an empowering thing for patients to feel like, you know, uh, I can go through this treatment and I, I can receive these therapies. And, you know, I, I put in my 50% and my effort and what I can get out of that is not, you know, is, is maybe a life that was so much better than they could have imagined. And it's not subject to being, you know, on liquid handcuffs, which is one way that methadone is, is often described, you know, uh, not that yeah. these, not that those drugs maybe don't have a place, uh, but, you know, it could be perhaps more short term. I know we're talking about opiate withdrawal now, so we should have discussions about something like Iboga, you know, Ibogaine and, and MindMed is currently developing 18MC, which is um, a, a novel derivative of that. And so Ibogaine is a psychedelic shrub from Africa, which has been shown to, uh, if not completely alleviate acute opiate withdrawal symptoms, get pretty close to it. Uh, and, and that's been a really remarkable sort of a, a addition to the, to the therapeutic toolkit that we've been, that we've been, you know, utilizing in, in psychedelic medicine. And, and you're right. What's really interesting is I had this discussion with uh, a doctor last night about how really this is not new medicine, you know, and nor is the, yeah. the element of incorporating it with psychotherapy. Like that's really what the indigenous cultures and tribes people uh, that brought this medicine forward through all the years. That's how, that's how they were doing it. It was a very community centric um, practice and tradition, you know, to, to utilize these plant medicines in a very sacred and uh, respectful way. And, and, you know, if someone in the community was suffering from depression or uh, addiction, you know, then it, the whole community would gather around them, you know. And I think right now that's so important because people feel so isolated uh, because of this pandemic, you know. And, and I know uh, people I've talked to say they've been struggling because, you know, they're not going to meetings as often, for example, for the people that go yeah. to 12-step meetings, you know. I know it was hard to get beds and stuff and detoxes before. Um, and so it's, it's definitely challenged us in a, in a lot of ways but it's super promising to see some of these results and these trials have come to right, come to light and you're right the sample sizes while they may be small for these early trials uh they're really robust because you know they they take in they take the sample size into account when you know ev evaluating the p-values and the statistics and even still you know they're getting such remarkable results and such significant yep. findings they definitely warrant greater research for sure yeah i couldn't agree with you more on that so, you know, considering the fact that psychedelic drugs have been grouped into the same category of illicit narcotic substances such as heroin or methamphetamine, uh, cocaine, especially because of the way that, you know, the, the Controlled Substances Act and the way that these compounds are scheduled, a lot of people kind of lump all these drugs together in one place, and that's sort of the the uh, motif or the message that's been traditionally used in your, uh, you know, more common detox or rehab program. So how will that paradigm shift in your mind occur to where we take some of these substances that have indeed shown such promise uh, in research? Uh, how can we remove the taboo and the idea that like, you know, we might be risking someone's sobriety or their chance of recovery by giving them a psychoactive compound like this. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, and, and much the way that um, I believe that, you know, medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder is making progress in that same domain. Um, you know, from my perspective, it's, it's two pieces. One, you continue to develop the science. You know, you get the scientific community uh, to really understand the potential benefits over over potential harms, you do keep doing these studies, keep building on the you know the extant research while taking it further for you know trying to treat other disorders. You keep building that body of research under you know really good controlled conditions, um, you know, and especially like you know that, that report I was just telling you about um, that you know that came out of uh, of JAMA, which is a you know highly highly respected journal. And I believe the researchers were from like Johns Hopkins and Ohio State University. So, you know, really highly respected journals, really highly respected research departments. More and more that this happens, I believe over time people will start to come around. I mean, you're 
we have to because we're, you know, if you look at suicides, for example, suicide rates are higher than they've ever been in this country. It has been escalating and escalating and escalating at rates that we've never seen before, before the pandemic started. Now, we don't know that the pandemic is going to increase suicide deaths. We don't know that. I, if I had to guess, I would say yes. But will, you know, will there be a statistically significant difference of what it would have been anyway before the pandemic, if sure. the pandemic hadn't come? I don't know if the pandemic is going to cause more suicide. You know, it'll be years before we really figure that out. My guess would be, yeah. You know, I mean, there's evidence from the SARS pandemic many years ago, 20 years ago, roughly, uh, where they did see some increased risk of suicide in certain age categories. Um, but one thing we do know is that almost every single person that dies by suicide had a, had a major, uh, had a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. I think the number is 90%, and I, I bet you it's higher. So if that's the, if that's the case, you know, what is the question? How do we reduce and reverse the trend of suicide deaths. Is it gonna be continued um, treatment, what we've been doing, status quo? Yeah, it can work. But how many people that died by suicide did never receive treatment? A lot, you know, right. probably half. So how are we going to engage the unengaged is one of the biggest questions. And will it be easier to engage the unengaged if we can offer faster, more effective treatments? And that's really where the promise lies here is, you know, we talk about a quick fix and sometimes these things aren't a quick fix, but what if we can do, you know, two or three sessions of, you know, these type of treatments you know, as the science progresses, you know, in combination with some form of, you know, mental health therapeutic treatment and see results faster. So maybe you still need 11 to 15 sessions to treat your major depressive disorder with a therapist. But we get you started on the medication side, you know, in the first session or two, and your symptoms reduce 50% in a week or two. That's, again, goes back to the game-changing aspect. And if that, if that turns out to remain or the science continues to support that or show that this is what's happening, again, with low levels of, you know, side effects, toxicity, you know, addiction issues – then, you know, I think that it'll become more and more accepted as we go. But, you know, we're still going to fight the stigma. We're still going to fight, you know, the, the AANA mentality, of, you know, uh, sobriety is the only way. Um, but if we can show success and we can save lives and we can advance the, you know, the extant literature and it continues to prove fruitful and positive, then that's going to go a long way to getting people on board with this. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And what's so interesting is that we need to, you know, a lot of these psychedelic and plant medicines have shown us that there is a need to change our definition of how we measure success for an, an, an addict, for example. You know, um, mm -hmm. depending on how these studies are done, oftentimes if it's not complete abstinence or full sobriety, um, then that person is categorized and statistically looked at as maybe having failed when in fact if they're still employing harm reduction practices maybe not going back to iv use uh, or, or maybe socially drinking or you know not everyone that doesn't fit everyone's character it doesn't work for everybody uh, but it's still important to to reevaluate our measures for what success really looks like you know uh, and understand that it's a continuum and it's something that you know, it definitely needs to be addressed and worked on uh, over a consistent basis uh, throughout someone's lifetime, you know? Uh, and I think what's yeah. really fascinating about the rapidity of how fast that these drugs work um, and how efficacious they're showing to be in clinical trials uh, and the fact that they do, you know, um, people do take them recreationally. I, I bring that up only because whatever it takes to get the addict through the door to treatment, right? Like, yeah. I, I think you can understand that being in the position you're in, like whatever it is that allures you uh, and entices you to leave that life that uh, of, of being an active addiction behind, uh, I think that's, that's great. You know, if it gets you through those doors and you're willing to make an effort to change. And I think what psychedelic medicine has kind of offered us this opportunity to maybe get people excited. You know, maybe they don't have to wait 
uh, maybe excited is a strong word, but they don't have to wait until things are absolute, you know, it's an absolute travesty to be like, okay, I'm ready to give up and go to treatment, you know, especially because the margin of error is just getting infinitely smaller as the mm-hmm. days go by with how powerful the drugs are on the street. It's not like it, the old days where, you know, every relapse can easily be your last, even if you're just, you know, even if you're not shooting heroin anymore, it's just because it's that fentanyl is finding its way into everything, you know, pressed pills, yeah. cocaine, uh, people are unknowingly consuming this and dying left and right. And that's a really scary thing, you know, so I, I think it's a, 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 an important point to mention that, like, if someone that's struggling with substance abuse disorder, or substance use disorder, if, if they get excited or are interested, or maybe uh, find it appealing that maybe psychedelics are a part of the to their their path forward to recovery. That that's okay, you know. I I think a lot of um, the way that the AA and NA twelve step uh, full abstinence mentality has kind of made a lot of feelings of like or conjured or facilitate a lot of things of like guilt or shame around the need to use anything at all like MAT, you know? Um, uh, and, yeah. and so this next step in how we're using medications and drugs to manage this condition, I think can really benefit from conversations like this, you know, and helping really dismantle the taboo and dismantle kind of the social beliefs and limiting beliefs around all of this. And, and so I think that's really an interesting point that you bring up. Yeah, and, you know, a couple of things that you just mentioned that I think are also very interesting is, you know, the stigma around addiction um, will remain for a long time and mental health, too. And there's this kind of stigma or feeling that you know, if you're addicted to some substance, going through the withdrawal phase, even if you're in a detox center, that's just kind of part of what you have to go through. You have to suffer and go right. through all those difficulties in order to get to a place where you're going to maintain sobriety. I've never bought into that. I mean, it's like saying someone with cancer has to suffer through the chemo in order to get to a place where they're going to be able to maintain, you know, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Remission with cancer. That doesn't make any sense. Although they do go through a difficult time, doctors do everything they can to provide comfort and to mitigate that. So saying someone's got to go through all the detox to suffer through, that, that's, that seems ridiculous to me. So if there is a way to ease that transition from active using, get through the withdrawal safely, of course. The second thing you mentioned, too, is this kind of notion of rock bottom. And like you said, you know, maybe many years ago, 10, 20, 30 years ago, um, you know, you could, you could use a lot more without the risk, you know, as severe a risk of overdosing and dying. But you're right. You know, it's not just IV opioids anymore. It's repressed pills on the street, which are laced with fentanyl and cartenafil and all these other ones that are coming out. Uh, It's other drugs. We're finding fentanyl in cocaine. We're finding it in repressed benzodiazepines. The overdose death rate has spiked in other drug categories that weren't necessarily known for being a big risk for overdose death and one-time use. So that notion of hit, you have to hit rock bottom is antiquated because now you can, you know, you can dig a tiny little hole, maybe just one shovel full of earth, and that could be your last time because it can kill you just like that. So if we can figure out ways to, you know, to get to the point where we can reduce the effects of withdrawal quickly and, you know, use, use uh, different types of treatment methods that help maintain abstinence quicker and longer, all the better. Yeah, it's interesting that that you mentioned that, you know, about that it's not like we need to go through and experience the physical torture of withdrawal, because if you ask any addict, that memory fades, you know, it's not like that memory of going through withdrawal is going to keep you from using the next time. There needs to be a a spiritual program or some sort of transformation that that takes place to where you're seeking and and wanting something else out of life because you definitely cannot rest on the fact that, oh, I went through this horrible detox, so I'm not going to go back again. It just doesn't work like that. So (laughs) since since we know that to be the case, uh, if if we can remove uh, or at least alleviate a large portion of that misery then people would likely be a lot more willing and eager to to get into treatment and get better to to begin with yeah and really in in the treatment industry especially in the for-profit side of that business um the 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 whole business is getting patients if you're a (laughs) facility and you have 
80 beds and you're operating consistently at 30 beds, you're not going to last very long. Right. So the whole business is getting patients into treatment and the fight, and I've worked on that side of the, of the business for a long time. The fight is getting them in and getting them to commit and getting them to come to treatment. And that's what that show intervention is all about. Right. You've probably right. seen it. And yeah. the, you've seen the battles, right. To get people right. into treatment. Of course. And some, sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not, but that's just the beginning. When they get to the front door, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. They, they walk in the front door, and then that's where the real battle begins with the treatment right. team and the patient and the family. And, you know, if, if something else you mentioned, if consequences catch people sober, like going through withdrawal once, then right. everybody would be sober. <laughs> that's, that's a really good point, man. <laughs> Sorry, but that's just that's brilliant. You're right, man. That's very true. Consequences never keep people sober, and and you know for the person who's suffering from addiction, they still believe that consequences will keep them sober. They don't learn the first time or the second time or the hundredth time. I, I can't tell you how many patients you know anecdotally have said to me, "Well, I know I'm not going to use again because if I do, my wife will divorce me." Then I'll usually come back and say, do you think that anyone has gotten divorced due to substance use disorders? Well, yeah. Well, how come the consequences in that scenario didn't prevent them from continuing to use? Or, you know, it's even more severe. Like if I test positive one more time, I'm going to jail for five years. Right. I, you know, I've had patients that knew they were facing severe prison time if they didn't complete a program or they tested dirty again, and they still went out and did it anyway. So that's never going to keep you sober, consequences. Um, what could keep people sober is, you know, advancements in the science, advancements in medication, advancements in treatment, and thinking outside the box. And that's how we're going to get to better, better treatments and better rates and reduce overdose death. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And you know, it's about the fact that these these medications, you know, psychedelic drugs, when used in the right context with the right competent trained clinicians in the right setting, they really have a ability to fast track and and catalyze that process that that spiritual transformation or that that uh, change that sort of needs to happen in your thinking to where you get out of this pattern. And, and I think there's a strong argument to be made for the profundity of the experience that psychedelic drugs bring on, uh, particularly in, in their full dose, um, because the, I guess, habitual pattern of addiction is so hardwired, depending especially on, you know, how long someone has been using and how, how long that's been their pattern. It really takes something radical uh, to, to shake that, you know, and I think what's interesting yeah. is that can be psychedelics now. It doesn't have to be the next um, horrible you know, DUI or you going to jail or someone dying close to you. Like it doesn't have to be that that causes the disruption. You know, like we have medicine now that can have that disrupt, you know, that can facilitate that disruption and create a place for you. And, and what's really interesting and important, I think, to point out when talking about things like Ibogaine, which is really a, a hot topic of conversation in the opioid com you know, uh, community, uh, is that there is no silver bullet. You know, I don't think either of us are, are uh, stating that there is, you know, um, but but the fact that these drugs can create basically a window of plasticity, you know, they can create a, a period of time where you are not in withdrawals anymore and that pattern has been disrupted. I, hopefully you're in a safe place and now you, you have this moment where you can make new decisions and, and you can set new behaviors and form new patterns. Uh, and it's, it's all about creating that, that space, you know, uh, both in treatment and then applying that to our daily lives. Uh, when you walk outside treatment, you know, how can I create that space between um, this visceral reaction I have or this resentment or this pain that I'm having uh, and my old reaction of reaching for a, a drug or a substance. Um, if, if and when, you know, and we we're seeing that we're able to use psychedelics to interrupt and, and modulate that pattern, uh, I think that's where the power really lies. You know? And I think it's important that you kind of bring that up and, and that's a really powerful argument for psychedelic medicine in general. Yeah, I, I agree. It all comes back to that for me. It, it's the, the downstream effects. If we can show and really understand the downstream effects in the brain and we can show that, you know, it creates, you know, synaptogenesis in the right places and we can understand what's happening and why, that's where the real holy grail is, I think. 
because that's, that's the, I don't want to say cure ever, but one of the biggest difficulties with people suffering from substance use disorders, for example, is that the, the de developmental pathways they've created throughout the course of their addiction are rapid fire, incredibly strong. You know, an example would be seeing like a trigger, for example, a trigger that leads to a craving to use. A trigger can be anything, but, you know, with, with, with IV heroin, for example, a spoon, a needle, a piece of cotton or, you know, anything can be a trigger, which right. leads to firing of, you know, neurons in the brain, which leads to a feeling of, you know, desire to use and which leads to, you know, more substance use. If you can find a way to, like you, you were talking about earlier, kind of change these pathways or disrupt these pathways, or you were mentioning with the, the case of pain, you know, kind of erase these, the memories of these pathways in, in the cells, that might be a little bit far-fetched. But if you can find a way to really do that and quickly, you know, that's what's going to make a major difference. We, we got to find stuff that works, doesn't take years and years and years, and can have immediate quick effects. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's so much potential when we, we look at the various types of addiction and substance use disorders. You know, we've talked a little bit about Ibogaine in this episode and its uh, ability to, you know, disrupt opiate withdrawals and cravings, which is really cool. Uh, I think another interesting application could be the use of microdosing psychedelics such as LSD or psilocybin. Um, for example, if people are recovering from meth, meth amphetamine abuse. Uh, I think methamphetamine abuse is particularly interesting because these addicts, especially the ones that are unfortunate enough to use for a long time, and God forbid they were IV users, uh, it seems to cause really profound architectural changes in the brain that mm -hmm. have, uh, by a lot of people, considered to be irreversible. Uh, but what's so interesting is the potential for neuroplasticity that these psychedelic drugs uh, have the ability to induce um it, it really it really changes our definition of what's irreversible you know i mean really anything's possible right it seems that uh we could possibly undo any amount of damage or at least a very large portion of it uh, and i think that's really hopeful for for the the someone in recovery not just from meth but you know i think from meth in particular there's a lot of uh, anhedonia and there's a lot of uh, lethargy and very hard to find motivation because of how badly your dopamine pathways kind of been hijacked yeah. or your reward system. Um, so, you know, considering the benefits that Silicon Valley techies have been touting about microdosing for some time now, I think there might be a cool application there, you know, to help people find that creativity and that spark and that drive, um, you know, through another substance that's, uh, that can be used, you know, with a much safer therapeutic profile and safety profile and, uh, and, and then, and yeah, and just really responsibly. I think it'd be interesting if you could talk a little bit about, you know, when we were talking about harm reduction and being responsible, like, What's interesting about the traditional psychedelic drugs is that, you know, they, they kind of have an anti-abuse mechanism intrinsic to them, you know, uh, whether it's something like DMT uh, and, and the active component ayahuasca, you actually become, it's one of the few compounds I know of that you become increasingly less tolerant to over to, over time. You actually become more sensitive uh, every time you consume ayahuasca or use DMT, uh, which is really unusual. You know, I know Kava Kava is like that too, but most drugs are obviously the opposite. Um, and so I think that's, that's super interesting. Uh, there's people like Paul Stamets, the famous mycologist who is doing things like including niacin in his microdosing stack. So the niacin acts as a sort of deterrence because if you've ever taken too much niacin, you'll have a niacin flush and that's super uncomfortable. So sort of like anti-abuse mechanisms that are, you know, that they're kind of utilizing as a part of uh, medicalizing these therapies. Uh, so just, you know, on a broader topic of harm reduction, like what do you think is the most important for us to consider? You know, I think this time around in the psychedelic renaissance, we're trying to do a lot of things differently and better than we did in the 60s and 70s. You know, I think everyone's really trying to make sure that we do it right this time. Uh, what are some of the things uh, you think needs to happen, especially as this gets integrated into, you know, mental health and addiction and somewhere uh, like where you work? Yeah, I think a few things, you know, one, what you mentioned was we do have to very carefully examine the potential for abuse for any of these drugs, right? Um, there is some potential 
for toxicity in repeated administration. We need to know a little bit more about what the potential dangers are there as well. Um, with LSD specifically, you know, some people, and usually from the sample sizes I've found, some people do report fairly severe or significant adverse effects. Um, common, common symptoms that they've described, anxiety, fear of going insane, fear, feeling as if one is dying, uh, which is more characterized more commonly in the, you know, the lay public as a bad trip. That, sure. that is a risk. And it seems like that risk is small <clears throat> and that risk may be more pronounced in people that have, you know, a, a history of certain types of anxiety disorders. So that might be a rule out, you know, if you have a family history, um, people could be excluded for those kinds of reasons. Um, so we have to examine that much more thoroughly. Um, you know, there's another, there's another disorder out there called hallucinogen persisting perceptual disorder, HPPD, more commonly, again, known in the lay public as a flashback. But this can involve, um, you know, kind of intermittent reemergence of the dis perceptual distortions that are happening during the course of treatment. Sometimes th this happens for a few weeks or a few months, and then occasionally people report uh, it goes even longer, even after the drugs have worn off. So <clears throat> I think, you know, as, as, as excited as we can get about the potential um, for significant improvement in very difficult to treat scenarios, uh, the reversal of suicide risk and, you know, bringing down the suicide death rates and, and reducing um, withdrawal symptoms, you know, in its, in its tracks. I mean, you mentioned Ibogaine. Ibogaine has, um, has actually, some of the studies I've, sh I've seen have reduced cravings significantly in a very fast time period, 48 hours even. Um, so as much as there is a significant upside uh, and significant potential, we can't lose sight of the fact that some of this may be damaging that may have, you know, significant side effects that need to be mitigated. We need to understand what type of people are more likely to suffer from these side effects um, and, and make sure we're not, you know, making people worse. But with any drug, any drug for any type of health disorder or medical diagnosis, there is some risk of side effects. So if we can get those numbers, again, down really as low as possible, um, to a point where, you know, it's going to save lives. Um, we have to, we have to pour a ton of energy into it. Oh, I hear you. I hear you. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Okay. Perfect. All right. Great. We'll just put a note in about the time point. Uh, we reconnected at 106. Uh, okay, great. So sorry about that, everybody. We had some technical difficulties, but we're reconnected with Dr. Bender now. Uh, do you remember where we left off? I don't. I think we were having a really deep discussion about, oh, you know what, maybe I should take a second to think about this. Where, where did we leave off talking about? Uh, oh, oh, the risk. I was trying to think of that. The risks. Oh, yeah. Okay. About the risks. Okay. So 106. Okay. Hey, everybody. We're back. Sorry about the technical difficulties. I'm reconnected with Dr. Bender now. And, you know, we were talking about the spotlighting, how important it is to talk about the risks. And, okay, we'll do that one more time. Hey, everybody. We're connected again with Dr. Bender. Sorry about those technical difficulties. Uh, we were talking about the risks that these medications carry. Uh, and granted, they are a lot lower um, than more traditional drugs we might use, particularly opioids, uh, things like methadone um, uh, and, and SSRIs, for example. Uh, they definitely have a, a better toxicity profile, a, a lot of psychedelics do, um, than some of the drugs we use now. But it's also super important to understand that I think no one is doubting that these are incredibly powerful compounds. You know, uh, and, and because of that comes a great deal of responsibility that's necessary in properly, safely and efficaciously integrating them into any sort of treatment protocol. You know, uh, there needs to be a, a, a completely revamped or, or pro, you know, comprehensive process to train the clinicians and the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, the therapists that conduct that therapy, you know. Um, and I think that's going to be extra important right now uh, when it comes to implementing these treatments into our, our modern approach. And I'm just really glad that you, you brought that up, you know, because that is the most important thing that we're trying to do right this time around is getting the safety uh, a part of it you know down we're not like sandoz in the 60s where they were just mailing lsd to anybody and everybody that wanted it you know uh we've come a long way and we've learned a lot since then 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I'm glad you you said that. And uh, agreed. You know, we've, the science has come a long ways since you know the '60s and Timothy Leary's day. Um, and going forward, like with any drug treatment, it's going to be just as important that we understand the risks uh, and more importantly, how do we mitigate those risks? You know, the, the research is in its, it's still in its early phase. Um, there's a lot of work to do. Um, there's been a ton of uh, smaller studies that show, you know, very significant and powerful effects. We need to expand upon that. Um, there's pilot studies now showing promise for the treatment of anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive disorder, treatment resistant depression, smoking cessation, alcoholism. I mean, how wonderful it would be to have you know, uh, a new type of treatment that showed great improvements in those major, major areas. But we do need to understand better the physiological mechanisms. We need to continue to work on understanding the downstream effects and the changes in the brain, synaptogenesis and new neuronal pathways. We have to remember that some of these drugs can create significant side effects. Um, LSD, for one, can create anxiety. It can, uh, we've heard patients and people talk about um, they, they sometimes feel like they're going insane or that they're dying, uh, more commonly known as a bad trip. Um, we also know that there is some risk, although we don't know how high a risk, of uh, hallucinogen persisting perceptual disorder, which again, in this case, more commonly known as a flashback, but it really involves the intermittent reemergence of perceptual distortion, which can sometimes be seen in the following weeks, months, or even longer after these drugs have worn off. So not to be a, uh, not to mention these things as, uh, you know, to dissuade people from doing this type of research, but it's just, just like any drug that goes to market, you know, going through the FDA process, um, there is a side effects for potential right. treatments, you know, and it's about, it's about minimizing those side effects. It's about identifying which type of people and type of, you know, history with mental illness may experience these side effects more. It's about good screening processes um, to reduce the, you know, the impact of those side effects to help to, you know, treat some of these extremely difficult disorders and ultimately save thousands and thousands of lives. And, and we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to the people of this country and really around the world that if there is any chance that these types of drugs can be used to do that, then we need to put a ton of resources and get the smartest scientists and researchers involved um, to figure out the best way to utilize these compounds. Yeah, absolutely. That was really well said, Dr. Bender, and I, I appreciate you, you know, spotlighting that important note of caution. Um, are you still there? Yeah. Oh, I don't, sorry, it just got silent for a minute. Let me start over. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for spotlighting the important note of caution here, Dr. Bender. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, it, it is probably the most important thing moving forward in this in this space right now. Uh, is making sure we are very mindful of uh, being safe and doing uh, all of this in the best, most efficacious and responsible way possible because, you know, that ch maximizes the chances of success to everybody. And in the end, that benefits society the most, you know. And what's so fascinating and, and so promising about this new paradigm of treatment is that, you know, it, it seems to be able to benefit so many more people in such a more robust way in, in, in uh, I, I think a way that GDP could eventually increase. There'll be more human innovation. People will be taking less sick days off work. There'll be less overdoses, you know, uh, and, and less uh, substance, substance abuse and the staggering healthcare costs in the United States alone is $1 trillion a year just from between the criminal justice system and, and medical costs, you know, to society from addiction. So we're really talking about a, a, a really big thing here. And it comes at such an important precipice in our collective evolution right now uh, with the pandemic and mental health crisis and the opioid epidemic. And you're at the forefront of all of it. And I think that's just so amazing. I'm really grateful. And I'm sure so many people are for the work that you do. And, you know, as we're uh, closing in, in our conversation here, I always like to give my guests the last word. Uh, so if you have a, a message that you'd like to share with our audience or just a final note to close on, that'd be uh, really awesome. You know, I, 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 I used to run a lot of groups for substance use disorder, and I would always tell the patients in those groups one kind of story to kind of get them started, break the ice. But I said, you know, I told them, you know, addiction is a brain disease. We have to treat it like a disease, and we have to use treatments to get to a place of remission because that's where we're at with addiction right now. There is no cure, but you can put this disease into remission. And I always said to them, 
one day I hope that we can sit here in this group and I can hand each one of you a pill and your addiction will be cured and we can all go home. And I jokingly would say, you know, don't worry about me. I'll find another line of work. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, every, everybody kind of joked and laughed about it, but I was only half kidding. I, I, I right. do truly believe that someday we are going to cure the disease of addiction. I don't know if this is it or this will be the start of it or this will you know, rapidly increase the treatment side of it or not. But I remain hopeful in the face of significant despair. And I hope that I'm alive and around to see it. Um, but it's only going to happen if we start thinking outside the box. We objectively review the data and we explore any possible way of treating these life-ending diseases, regardless of how we feel about it. Man, that's a really awesome, uh, it's a really awesome goal. And I think it's a really admirable one, you know, and clearly your passion for working in the space and, and helping people through these difficult conditions really shines through in the, you know, in, in, the, in the way that you speak and the work that you do. And so, you know, I just wanted to say from me and the Microdose team, thank you so much for being on the show today. And I, I really appreciate having you. And I look forward to our next conversation as usual, Dr. Bender. Yeah, my pleasure. And, you know, and, and again, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. And uh, it's always good to talk to you. And uh, feel free to reach out anytime. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And everybody, this is another great episode of the Sci-Fi Podcast, where we interview leading industry experts, clinicians, scientists, and researchers to unravel the mystery that is psychedelic science. I was joined today by Dr. Theodore Bender of Unity Point. We had a fascinating discussion about addiction, psychedelic medicine, and just the future of mental health in, in the world right now. And uh, I, I definitely recommend everybody check it out. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube. Please leave a review, rate us, and check us out next time. Thank you so much, Dr. Bender. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for joining the Sci-Fi Series, brought to you by Microdose and The Conscious Fund. Visit our website at www.microdose.buzz.